Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Greetings and salutations, listeners. Thanks again for coming back to the Long Box of Darkness. So this week, we'll be looking at something very special and again, near and dear to my heart. It's a comic book I purchased when I was probably six or seven years old. This would make it um, early 80s, probably around 82, 1982. Um, And it was my first war comic. But of course, since this is the Long Box of Darkness, this comic book has a hefty helping of horror. And the title that we're going to be discussing tonight is called Weird War Tales, number 93, published by DC Comics in November of 1980. And um, this was one of their horror anthology titles, along with House of Secrets, House of Mystery, The Unexpected, uh, Secrets of the Haunted House, and so forth. It's a very, very interesting comic because it's sort of married two genres, which um, movies did at the time. I'm, I'm thinking things like Ridley Scott's Alien that uh, successfully combined the horror and the sci-fi genres. But this comic in particular uh, did so with horror and war. Now, of course, you could argue that all war comics are essentially horror. But the horror comics uh, that dealt with war in the past dealt so more from, uh, you know, from the EC Comics perspective where it was portrayed very graphically until the comic code stepped in, but they didn't really focus on supernatural horror. So Weird War Tales, obviously, with emphasis on the weird, focuses on horror stories with a supernatural bent set in the theater of World War II. And, of course, there were some stories from World War I and from the American Civil War, even from post-apocalyptic wars in the future. But um, I would say at least 80 to 90% of all of their stories were set, or all of the main stories were set in World War II. So, uh, let's get into this comic. First off, like any good horror comic, Weird War Tales did have a horror host. And in the case of this comic, though, it wasn't an Uncle Creepy or a Cousin Eerie or a Cain or an Abel or even an Eve or um, the Crypt Keeper or the Old Witch. No way. Uh, Nothing less than Death himself would do this comic justice as a horror host. That's right. Death was the horror host for the uh, Weird War Tales comics. Um, But with a bit of a gimmick... In every comic, 
he was dressed in a different military uniform. Sometimes he would show up as um, a French soldier from the French Revolution. Sometimes he would show up as a Vietnam War veteran. Or um, you know, sometimes he would show up as a naval officer. But he would always have this grinning death's head skull of his um, and narrating the tales to come. So uh, I liked him. Actually, he's probably next to Kane from the House of Mystery. He's probably my favorite horror host because he had this wry sense of humor. Obviously, he focused heavily on puns like uh, the Crypt Keeper does when he, at least the Crypt Keeper that we knew from the TV series in the 1980s. But puns um, are fun for me. There's lots of people who don't like puns. I kind of dig them, uh, even though they're hokey and derivative sometimes, I still think that's part of being a horror host. So well done there to death, the horror host of the uh, Weird War Tales comics. All right, so um, because they used the anthology horror system, the anthology story, which works so well for horror, they had normally three to four tales in every comic book, in every issue. And um, in this particular comic, Weird War Tales number 93, they had four stories. And this issue is notable because it features the introduction of a team of soldiers who sort of stayed with the comic until almost the very end, until it concluded its run in 1983 or 1982. And um, these soldiers were known as the Creature Commandos. That's right, the Creature Commandos. They were a team uh, not really superhero-like at all. They were definitely in the horror vein since they were based on the Universal Monsters from Filmland. Yeah, that's right. So um, you had a patchwork creature, you had a vampire Dracula-like style soldier, you had a werewolf, and later on they were joined by other editions. But this was their introduction in Weird War Tales number 93. And that's kind of the reason why I picked this comic. Now, this was um, possibly my first uh, war comic. I can't rightly remember, you know, sometimes my memory is a bit hazy. Um, it could even have been one of the comics that, that was at the bottom of a, a huge long box that my uncle had given me, which was my first real comic book collection when I was five. I could have dug it out from the bottom. But I remember the first time when I read it, I was kind of blown away because I had not seen the Creature Commanders before and they made quite an impact on me. Uh, since my dad was a big war buff and he liked history and the history of World War II and he had lots of books about that, I kind of glommed onto that, onto his likes and dislikes, my dad's I mean. And um, yeah, he would tell me stories and then I would put a weird bent on them put some supernatural happenings in there every time he was speaking to me about them. And then, you know, every time a new issue of Weird War Tales came out or when I could find one as a back issue in corner stores or supermarkets, I would definitely, you know, pick it up. So, yeah, let's get into this comic. Um, the cover itself is amazing. It's by the great Joe Kubert. And it shows the creature commandos bursting through a wall, surprising a cadre of Nazis. Now, Joe Kubert is great at drawing anything war-related. Um, he, of course, is famous for Sergeant Rock and for numerous other war comics during the 50s and 60s and 70s. 
But um, this is, uh, to my knowledge, the first time he drew some kind of supernatural war event. He might have done some Haunted Tank covers earlier on, which was another supernatural war comic. But um, I can't remember, though. I, I do remember that when I saw him drawing this weird War Tales cover, and I saw the Creature Commandos on the on the front bursting through this wall, I thought, whoa, that's the first time I saw Joe Kuber draw monsters. When, in fact, he has drawn monsters um, in his life. Of course, he's done everything. He even drew some horror comics back in the day. But this was the first time for me personally that I saw Kubert sort of uh, breaking the mold, so to speak. So this cover is great. It's, it's, it features the three um, monstrous characters, um, the Frankenstein-like creature, the wolfman, and the vampire. And it also features a regular soldier, um, a lieutenant who was in command of their team. And we'll get into their characters and names later on. I just want to set the stage here a little bit. So basically, they're surprising these Nazis. And <laughs> there are two Nazis on this cover with the most comical expressions. But it's also the most terrifying, most fear-inducing expressions that you can imagine. There's this one guy, he's sweating and he's screaming and he's looking straight at the reader as if he's saying, get me out of this comic book. And then he's pointing... Uh, at the um, creature commandos bursting through this wall. And then there's another guy in on, on the right, another German who's um, also looking at the reader. And um, he's also screaming and his jaws elongated. And it uh, looks like his face is pulling itself off of, or, or his skin's like pulling itself off of his face. And it's just a very comical cover. I mean, that's how much these guys are screaming with fear. It, it looks like literally their skulls are peeling out of their, uh, through their skin. And then there, of course, there's three other Germans who are sort of trying to, um, you know, combat these monsters who are attacking them. They're pointing their, um, their guns at the creature commandos, but it doesn't seem to phase uh, the commandos at all. Um, in fact, the Frankenstein-like creature has already picked up one of the Germans and he's holding him. Uh, like a bag of grain and he's probably about to crush him and uh, it's it's just a very weird you know pose it's very awkward the way he's holding this German soldier but it's great it's such a good cover and um, yeah I would uh, definitely for the cover alone I would say I probably picked up this comic if in fact I did buy it like I said I couldn't remember but um it says, uh, introducing World War II's weirdest warriors, the creatures, the creature commandos, right on the front cover of this comic book. So great. Brilliant cover. All right, so uh, then, uh, first page of the comic book, we've got Death uh, sewing a flag or a shroud. It could be a shroud. And he's dressed in a Nazi uniform this time around. And in fact, he's sewing um, a bunch of uniforms. There's a, a laundry line of uh, tattered uniforms from different eras hanging above his head. And um, he's saying, Death is saying, it is said that there's nothing quite so handsome as a man in uniform. I, in my time, I've seen every proud uniform ever worn by the sorry human race. For I am Death, the terrible tailor. And in the end, all men must come to me. And then, you know, he's surrounded by skulls. Some skulls are still wearing helmets. And... Uh, Strangely enough, all the skulls, you know, lower jaws are missing. And then there's uh, a Luger with three bullets lying on the floor. And 
kind of like a, a little bit a uh, bag and then uh, it seems to be like a scimitar that's been you know embedded into the ground beneath death's feet yeah it's a great image and um i think the art here is by pat broderick yeah or no 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 yeah it is um and then you know we get into the comic book itself the first uh, story death's there again but this time he's dressed as just a common german foot soldier and he says, uh, in a centuries-old castle in the heart of Nazi-occupied France, a bizarre tableau unfolds as the cream of Hitler's killer elite come face-to-face -face with the weirdest warriors of all. And then we've got sort of a recreation of the cover of the comic book itself. We've got the three creature commandos bursting through a wall, um, surprising these Nazis, along with their commanding officer. But uh, in this image, they're actually speaking. And uh, the lieutenant... Uh, who's leading them is saying, okay, gentlemen, it appears the time for discretion is past. We've got a wide open fight on our hands. And then the werewolf character, uh, obviously itching to get into the fight, says, um, oh, that's so glorious when there's blood and death. <laughs> okay, so this first story is uh, written by J.M.D. Matthias with art by Pat Broderick and Joe Salardo. And in fact, J.M. D. Matthias and Pat Broderick created the Creature Commandos. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letterer is Ben Oda. And of course, the editor is the ubiquitous Len Wein. All right, everybody. Now I'm going to give a quick synopsis of the four stories. So um, after the synopsis, I won't spoil anything in the actual synopsis, but I will uh, give another spoiler warning just before I commence to talk about the events in the comic. But... Here's the synopsis for the first story, which is just entitled The Creature Commandos. Um, okay, the military's top brass convenes at an army training camp where a young lieutenant unveils a new breed of soldiers, courtesy of Project M, M for monster. The soldiers are dubbed by a fearful general as the Creature Commandos, and they are set loose upon the Nazis. Their first mission is to infiltrate a castle in France where Nazi scientists have been doing secret experiments. Their mission goes well, but they discover that they are not all that special after all, merely tools in a war where everyone and everything is expendable. All right, so that's the synopsis. Um, now, let's get into some of the characters a bit. I've mentioned um, the horror characters, but let's first focus on their commanding officer, uh, who is called Lieutenant Shreve. Now, he is this callous, seemingly uncaring, rough-around-the-edges uh, kind of character. He doesn't care for his charges. He sees his um, subordinates as less than human, his squad, his team. And uh, he just wants to be rid of them, really. But he is nevertheless a very capable soldier, very brave, uh, fearless, and in fact um, uses the creature commander's abilities to the, to the best of... Um, I guess anyone in the armies know how because he was with them from the start. He knows what they're capable of and uh, he's trained with them. So, um, yeah, although he presents himself as uncaring and he frequently insults the creature commandos um, whenever they're in combat, he does seem to be incredibly capable of getting um, successes out of the missions that they partake in. So that's Lieutenant Shreve. He's always wearing a red sweater, which sort of makes me think, wow, he must be easy to spot. 
um, you know, if they're trying to sneak up on someone or, or if they're trying, if he's running up, down, up and down the battlefield wearing this bright red sweater, <laughs> it's a Polonic sweater, um, that kind of gives him away. But um, a brilliant marksman is a very good man to have um, at your back in a fight. Yeah, so that's Lieutenant Shreve. But nothing special about him in terms of powers or abilities. And then you've got the three universal film-like monster creatures. You've got a guy um, called Lucky Taylor, who used to be a private, but he stepped on a landmine. And his body was totaled, completely blown to shreds, and then... Um, the scientists um, working for Project M managed to salvage most of his body parts and obviously combined it with, with different parts uh, from other soldiers. And they created a Frankenstein-like monster, a patchwork creature. Um, and he's still just called Lucky Taylor. They don't have any other nicknames. They just keep their, their actual names, which they had when they were still soldiers. But of course, he's uh, immensely strong. Um, even stronger than the Frankenstein uh, monster is portrayed in the novel or in some comic books. Um, in the Creature Commandos comics that I read after this tale, um, he's seen hefting a tank, throwing it um, at least 100 feet um, at uh, you know a retreating German army. I've seen him pick up a giant missile and, and throw that at some you know Germans. Uh, he's incredibly powerful, really. He's toppled guard towers with a simple shove. So yeah, much more a very dangerous uh, foe to have, and the Germans will definitely find that out the hard way. And then you've got uh, the werewolf-like character, who is called uh, Warren Griffith. Um, now he used to suffer from uh, lycanthropy, but it was a psychological. Uh, ailment. He couldn't actually turn into a werewolf. It was completely psychosomatic until the scientists who studied him at Project M managed to manifest it physically. So now um, he can change into a werewolf at will. He doesn't need the full moon, but because of this process, um, it's inherently unstable because he's, he's actually changing into werewolf when there isn't a full moon, so he has to induce the, the change, the transformation, um, you know, mentally. But, um, you know, it, it clashes with this idea that he's a werewolf because it isn't a full moon most of the time when he has to change. So sometimes it's unstable. Sometimes he sporadically reverts back to his human form and so forth. And in the thick of battle, that could be a problem. That could be a detriment for the team. But... He's nevertheless quite effective. He mows down Germans um, in double quick time. He's got long, dangerous claws, and he frequently uses his jaws to, to, you know, mash through, crunch through bone. Um, so no, he's very, very dangerous. And seemingly, you know, like most of the creature commandos, they're immune to bullets. They've run into hails of bullets, and they never actually get hurt. Um, nothing short of an explosion, I'm sure, can kill them. And then finally, we've got a sergeant by the name of Vincent Velcro. Um, and he was sentenced to his 30-year sentence in an army brig. Um, we, ne we never get told what he exactly did, but it must have been something terrible. He might have killed, even killed a commanding officer or, or assaulted a commanding officer. 
And um, he is the vampire-like, the Dracula-like character of the Creature Commandos. Um, he was given a serum that the scientists from Project M combined with the DNA of, and the blood of a vampire bat. And eventually he developed the, the skill to actually metamorphose into a giant vampire bat. But he also developed the bloodlust that a vampire is known for. And he hates himself. He hates what he has become because of this bloodlust. And so he's frequently suicidal. And he also um, disregards authority and frequently clashes with Lieutenant Shreve. But he's also very effective. He's sort of the stealth type character of the team. He normally sneaks up on um, sentries and takes them out. Normally flies in as a bat and then lands behind them, knocks them off walls or just literally rips out their throats. So that's what makes this a horror comic. For kids, I mean, the comic book code was still in full effect here, but the way the creature commandos take out the enemy soldiers are definitely very bloody and for, for a DC comic at the time, at least. And remember, a lot of kids were reading these comics. But I guess, you know, a lot of kids were reading the EC comics, too, way back when, and they were exposed to even bloodier things. <laughs> All right, so those are the characters. And then... Um, I found it really funny uh, when they're introduced to the top military brass in this training camp um, in the States um, in order to get the okay from the generals that they can be deployed in um, uh, occupied France, they burst through this projector screen <laughs> for dramatic effect. They just run through, boom, as soon as... Uh, Lieutenant Shreve announced them. So it seems like Lieutenant Shreve and the creature commanders must have rehearsed this entrance a little bit beforehand because, uh, like I say, very dramatically, they burst uh, into the the lecture hall or the hall where uh, the meeting's being held. And uh, then they're presented to the, the generals. Now, at first, the generals are very skeptical. They don't want to employ these guys. They're saying, like, this is an abomination. You know, what, what have you done? What have these kooky scientists at Project M um, done? How have they completely disregarded nature? I mean, we've got this one general saying, I'm appalled, Lieutenant, I'm appalled. And then Valcro, who really doesn't like authority, he literally attacks the general. But before he attacks him, he quickly changes into a bat even though he's just a couple of feet away from the general. And then he immediately changed back into a human and grabs the general and, and literally wants to rip out his throat. And um, he even calls the general a stinking buffoon. <laughs> oh, man, Valcro's great. This is no Hollywood costume job, general. Ludicrous though it may be. <laughs> you and your ilk have made me a creature that needs human blood to survive, and I will have yours. And then, you know, of course, the werewolf character Griffith stops Valcro. But just before he, he manages to restrain Valcro, he, he changes back into his human form, totally against his will. And Valcro just bashes him down and, you know, thrashes him. And he hits the table hard. And then Lieutenant Shreve is left wondering, like, how can I control these guys? <laughs> so, you know, just... Within a few seconds of their introduction, Lucky Taylor seems to be the most normal of the lot. And eventually, Lucky, the, the Frankenstein-like creature, he grabs Valkyrie and, and nearly strangles him. 
and uh, he throws him across the room and then everybody calms down and you've got Valkyr like looking indignant and dusting himself off and glaring at Lucky but eventually the generals even after this 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 horrible display of insubordination <laughs> where this general has even been attacked he says Lieutenant Shreve these commanders of yours are a menace they are terrifying reprehensible assortment of human dregs and I hope that I never set eyes on them again and Shreve is obviously taken aback he's thinking oh man they're you know this is it my career's blown they're not going to deploy the creature commanders but then <laughs> the general grabs him and almost like in a bear hug he says or he grabs him around the shoulders and he shakes Shreve and the general says, Don't interrupt me, son. I said I never want to see them again and I meant it. But that doesn't mean that we will negate um, the fact that they may be the most effective secret weapons this country has ever seen. <laughs> so um, they mentioned briefly that the whole idea behind the Project M4 Monster is not so much creating monstrous soldiers with monstrous abilities it's also for psychological purposes apparently these scientists and you know psychologists have studied um you know the human fear uh, reflex and um, evolutionary psychologists have come up with these three horror archetypes that would scare the bejesus out of the Germans and of anybody who faces these commandos. So because of the psychological factor, anybody who's confronted with the creature commandos um, immediately, um, you know, freeze because they see these creatures. And um, that's why they really created them, not because of their effective physical skills, but because of the psychological fear that they would induce in the enemy. So the creature commandos are employed to... France, and then uh, they parachute in. Um, then there's this very weird scene where, as they're parachuting in, a German uh, fighter plane, a Stuka, shoots down uh, the the plane that dropped them into occupied France, and then the pilot dies. And then Shreve says something like, "That's one more score we have to settle." Obviously, mean meaning they have to get vengeance for the pilot. And then Valkyrie said, oh, spare us. You know, there'll be no tears shed for our poor fallen comrade. No tears at all. But then <laughs> Lucky, the Frankenstein-like creature, cries. He didn't even know this pilot. And people in war die by the hundreds of thousands, you know, and Lucky's crying for this one pilot. But it could be that he, he was crying for himself, you know, because he, he he's mute, by the way, Lucky Taylor. They, the scientists who uh, reassemble his um, variegated body parts, didn't bother to give him vocal cords, apparently, which is also something they mentioned earlier. But then, you know, Lucky's the only one who cries for the death, at the death of this pilot. And then they, they uh, get to this castle where apparently army intelligence um, has learned that the scientists, the German scientists working there, are doing some clandestine experiments that could turn the tide of the war in the uh, Nazis' favor. So then uh, Shreve sends Valkyrie in to stealthily take out the sentries on the walls. He does so in bad form and uh, drains them, drinks them dry. And uh, Griffith, too, shows his um, uh, prowess. He climbs, he scales the wall with his claws of this huge French castle. And... Uh, 
literally pulls a Nazi off the wall and then doesn't just throw him down to his death, but he goes so far as to first club the Nazi or bash him against the side of the castle wall and then drop him. And basically nothing can stop the creature commanders, at least not ordinary Nazi soldiers. They leave a trail of dead bodies in their wake as they head deeper and deeper into the interior of this castle. And then eventually uh, they find uh, heavy resistance, at least two dozen soldiers, and there's a huge battle. But these four soldiers, the three creature commanders and Lieutenant Shreve, immediately uh, sort of destroy this group of Nazis. And then uh, there's this reinforced steel door that uh, Lucky Taylor just, you know, smashes down with a tap of his hands. And then what do they find inside the secret lab? They find President Franklin D. Roosevelt sitting in his wheelchair and saying, please, young men, there has been a mistake. <laughs> Don't attack me. You're wrong. And then, uh, of course, Shreve is not buying it. He, he knows there's no reason why President Roosevelt um, would be in this room. So he immediately opens fire. But it turns out that President Roosevelt is bulletproof. Wow. Amazing. No, he's not from Krypton. Lucky gives him a punch. He takes a shot at the president. <laughs> and it turns out... As the president's head's come, head comes off his shoulders, he's a, a robot, an android. Um, and then as they look around the room, they see dozens of androids um, of world leaders. Uh, you have uh, General Eisenhower, you have Stalin, you have Winston Churchill. And it turns out that the Nazi scientists here have been creating these androids in, uh, to eventually supplant the real leaders of the world of the Allies, um, so that they could be, uh, you know, their pawns, the Nazi pawns, and then the Nazis could control those countries through these androids, who are very lifelike and could po probably pull it off if it wasn't for the creature commandos. So then more Nazis show up, even after the at least 50 Nazis that the creature commandos have already killed, and then <laughs> Shreve literally just says, hit him! And then the creature commanders again jump into action, and it's a slaughterhouse. And then eventually um, they need to hightail it out of here. More reinforcements arrive. Shreve drops his bag, and um, unfortunately poor Griffith changes back into his human form, uh, totally against his will. They jump over the wall just in time, and the creature commanders are left wondering why are we running for our lives here when we could have easily taken these sh soldiers and then it turns out that just in time uh, Lieutenant Shreve got them out of there because the bag that he dropped contained an experimental bomb that literally just uh, blasts this whole castle to smithereens and um, for some reason even though Shreve warned them in plenty of time and then you know to get out of there and he basically saved the commanders it wasn't a suicide mission they're much too valuable to him. Valcro grabs him and says, yeah, we're nothing to you. We're just, you know, chattel. We're nothing. And then Shreve says, come on, Valcro. You know, I'm tired. Stop this. And Valcro ends by saying, we may have the forms of monster, Shreve, but you, you have a monstrous spirit. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, will um, 
come up again and again in all the Creature Commandos comics. Uh, Shreve behaving like a monster, because that is what he is inside, whereas the other monsters, you know, of the Creature Commandos team, they're normally behaving more human than um, actually a human could behave. So then Death ends the story by saying, there is hatred between these men, there is anger, there's resentment, but there's also the unvoiced thought that they have just begun to carve a new legend in the weird war. <laughs> and that concludes our first tale of this issue of Weird War Tales. All right, so um, great story. Um, for today's ratings, we'll be using the Grinning Skull rating because of Death, the horror host. You guessed it, listeners. And um, this story, um, since it's the introduction of the Creature Commandos, I have to give it kind of a high rating, but not too high, because um, the plot is very simplistic. The art is great by Pat Broderick, but um, I think the penciling, uh, or the inking, I should say, took a little bit of the beauty of the line art away. Um, however... Very effective. Um, the, the introduction of the Creature Commandos is done in a great, large, huge panel. Um, and uh, there's some funny moments, even though I don't think that uh, J.M. DeMatteis intended those moments to be funny. But, you know, looking back on it, this comic is uh, a gem. Uh, it's, it's definitely of its time. And, and we can look back and laugh a little bit and look back on it with some humor. So um, I would give this comic three, the story at least, three Grinning Skulls out of five. And um, probably, well, not my favorite of the bunch, but my second favorite, definitely. All right, let's move on to the second story. This story is entitled Ultimate Weapon, and it's a very short story, uh, three pages at most, and it's written by George Kasdan with art by Dennis Cowan and John Salardo. Lettered by Milt Snappen. Colors, again, is Adrian Roy and, of course, the editor still Len Wein. Okay, here's the synopsis. Uh, the club people and the rock people survive in a post-apocalyptic future where most humans have regressed to the Stone Age after, of course, you guessed it, a nuclear holocaust. The rock people are attacking the hideout of the club people uh, because the club people are supposedly working on a secret doomsday weapon. Uh, s some hidden knowledge that they've learned or relearned from the pre-war era. Um, but the club people successfully repel the rock people and it is revealed that the doomsday weapon is in fact something th that the reader wouldn't expect. <laughs> Probably one of the last things the reader would expect. Okay, so this story, not much to say about it. Um, really simple, cute little story. I'll start with the art, which isn't half bad. You know, I really dig this art uh, by uh, Dennis Cowan and John Salardo. It works. You know, the characters have some great facial expressions. These rock people, as they're ga gathering rocks to attack the club people. That's why their name is the rock people, because their choice of weapon are these huge boulders. Um, and, of course, the club people, you know what their weapon would be. Uh, but this time around, as the story opens, um, Death again introduces it, but he's dressed as a caveman with a club, so obviously Death here favors the club people, and that's why I think <laughs> um, the rock people eventually lose. 
So the fact that death shows up in the very beginning, or, you know, with this club, sort of uh, shows his favoritism a bit, I would say. Come on, death, that's a little bit unfair, man. Anyway, and then there's this battle sequence between the rock people and the club people, and there's these really funny sound effects like fwap and thunk and some battle cries. Yeah! <laughs> All right, and then um, the big reveal, the sort of twist ending that most of these horror stories had. Um, it's not that great, but it is a little bit surprising, of course, and um, it did make me chuckle. Um as, you know, the attack is repelled and the rock people hightail it out of there, um, it turns out that the doomsday weapon that the club people have been working on is nothing other than the wheel. That's right, they're recreating the wheel. That's the doomsday weapon that's going to turn the tide of the conflict against the rock people. <laughs> okay, and then Death, he shows up again to bookend the story and, and he says Santanyana said it best those who do not learn from the past are destined to repeat it. <laughs> so in death's mind they're recreating the wheel everything's going to restart again, human civilization is going to flourish and then go down the drain <laughs> again <laughs> and then you know um, we've got these, uh, this great ad which I used to love this is on the next page um, right after this story Ultimate Weapon it's in smack dab in the very middle of the comic, and it advertises the CBS Saturday morning cartoon lineup, uh, which of course we didn't have in South Africa, but I saw all of these cartoons in some form of other, either from renting at a DVD stores or because they obviously also appeared on our TV channels. And um, there's a lot of panels showcasing each of the cartoon shows. T um, uh, the top left-hand panel says, Tail spinners from out of the sky. And then we've got Mighty Mouse and the Heckle and Jekyll Hour. Tom and Jerry comedy show. The Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner show. The Popeye Hour. The Drac Pack. <laughs> the new Fat Albert show. We've got Tarzan and the Lone Ranger Adventure Hour. And we've even got 30 minutes of news. Hard-hitting, controversial reports on current issues directly affecting you. Wow. <laughs> Kids must have loved that. But I guess that was mostly for the parents. And then we end with this frisbee that was seen, or it could be a flying saucer, I'm not sure, but I I think it's a frisbee <laughs> that flies back out to the bottom right-hand panel and says, CBS on Saturday, we now return control of the comic book to you. <laughs> oh, it's a great ad. It was a double-page spread, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it is. All right, so then the next story is probably my favorite of the bunch. I'll quickly do the synopsis for that. Uh, and it's called Rising Sun. Now, this is a pretty cool, pretty good story. Uh, the writer on this is Mike W. Barr from Outsiders fame, Batman and the Outsiders. Pencils by Noli Zamora. <laughs> wow, what a great name. Noli Zamora, wow. Uh, Zamora, that's like the city from the Conan the Barbarian stories in the Hyboria, right? That's Zamora, that's what I remember. Man, I would love to have a name like that. Herman Zamora. Anyway, so then letters by Ifit Mehalem, another cool name. Colorist, Jerry Serpy with editor Len Wein again. All right, the synopsis for Rising Sun. In a U.S. relocation camp for Japanese citizens during World War II, an old Japanese man called Tabushi 
prays to the rising sun to protect his homeland of Japan, even though he is against the emperor and General Tojo. A racist and intolerant commander uh, wants to find a way out of serving at the camp and um, thinking that he could promote himself by catching a spy. Um, they focus on old man Tabushi and interrogate him. But unfortunately, the interrogation doesn't go well. And uh, old man Tabushi's son, in fact, then discovers the means at which a hidden spy had been sending messages to the enemy, even though Tabushi and his son were never involved. And uh, the guards spot him, uh, chase him around the camp, but then the real spy reveals himself. And uh, we have a horrible revenge enacted on this spy by none other than the rising sun. Great story, great story. I'll explain what I mean by that last bit just now. So here's the spoiler segment again. Okay, so these obviously US Japanese citizens are imprisoned in these relocation camps. It was a reality, it was terrible, it was unfair, uh, violation of their human rights and their rights as American citizens, of course. So um, these reprehensible uh, people taking care of this camp, at least in this um, story, they just want to get away from there. They want to join the war effort. They don't want to be here. They don't want to babysit these, um, who, what they see as Japanese spies, basically. So um, the commander himself, uh, or the colonel, Colonel Simon and Sergeant Reynolds, they're the despicable pair uh, who concoct this plan that they have to fake a, sort of a spy and um, they have to create a scapegoat and then they have to obviously capture the spy in the act and then because uh, in so doing they might be promoted. But uh, the comic book starts off with old man Tabushi praying to the rising sun. You know, he really uh, loves his country of Japan, but he is against the war. He knows the war is wrong. And then um, uh, Reynolds and Colonel Simon, you know, they're seen chatting for at least two pages. Um, a bit of a boring exchange, but they come up with this plan that they should interrogate every single person in the camp to find out who could possibly be a spy and who they could pin the blame on and sort of frame in order for them to then leave after they get the promotion for ferreting out this traitor. And eventually it's old man Tabushi's turn to be interrogated. He's taken away from his son, and his son is worried about his health because he knows he will, uh, Tabushi won't stand up under interrogation. And we've got this great bit of poetry from old man Tabushi's son. He says... Uh, well, when old man Tabushi is led away by the soldiers, he says, Do not fear for me, my son. The rising sun shall be with me as always. Obviously, he prays to the rising sun every morning. And then his son thinks, I hope so, father, but even a rising sun must cast shadows. And only I only hope that the shadow of death will not be cast over you this day. <laughs> Bit of light poetry there for you. And in fact... The sun's suspicions come true, um, or what he dread, what, what he dreaded came true, because old man Tabushi's dad can't stand up under the interrogation. He, in fact, dies from a heart attack, um, but he's totally innocent. You know, he, he's not a spy, and 
Reynolds and Simon, who caused his death, they, you know, don't seem to regret it at all. They don't feel remorse. And um, they're, in fact, laughing at uh, old man Tabushi's fate. And then we see Tabushi's son burying him. It's a very sad moment. And then as he's walking away from his dad's grave at night, he finds this um, other mound where something has been buried um, on the outskirts of the camp. And it turns out to be a radio transmitter. So, in fact, there has been a real spy. There was a real spy in the story. It wasn't just a scapegoat um, that, you know, Reynolds and Simon had concocted up or wanted to frame. But just as uh, Tabushi's son, um, who's called Masao, Masao Tabushi, digs out this radio, the guards on patrol, the sentries spot him and they chase him around the compound. Eventually, Reynolds confronts him. And, uh, you know, Masao is trapped. He can't, you know, escape now. And um, then Reynolds says, I've got, uh, you know, as Colonel Simon arrives, Reynolds says, I've got him, sir. He's the spy who's been transmitting troop placement info to the Japs. <laughs> now, this is the the bit of a, a weird part in the story because um, this is um, sort of giving away or, or being too obvious with, you know, the plot twist that they're coming up with here, the fact that Reynolds so accurately described the information that the spy had been transmitting. And um, then Masao is pretty sharp. He's pretty, um, you know, uh, probably on the ball here when he says, how do you know the exact nature of the information being tra transmitted unless you are the real spy? <laughs> And then it seems like Reynolds is completely tongue-tied. And then Simon, Colonel Simon, immediately takes Masao Tabushi's side and he says, that's right, Sergeant, how could you know? Now, there's never any explanation given why, but Reynolds does, in fact, turn out to be the actual spy, the spy for the Japanese, even though he's a ginger-headed guy. He's got, you know, red hair. He looks like this muscular kind of Archie Andrews <laughs> That's the look he has. How could the Japanese have turned him? Especially after Pearl Harbor. I can't conceive of it. What, was he always working for the Japanese for money? I, I don't know. Even before the war, he's a collaborator. I don't know how it works. But anyway, it turns out he's the spy. And uh, he's going to kill both Colonel Simon and Masao before the guards find out. But just then, this is where the supernatural weird war tales element comes in. Dawn hits. And uh, the sun's rays pierce the clouds of, you know, in the early morning. And the rays of the sun burst onto the back of Sergeant Reynolds and hit him. And he sort of, this is a great progression of panels. Four panels that shows him dying in the rays of the sun. It's like lasers hitting him from behind. He immediately boils and cooks and burns and turns into a skeleton. So within a matter of seconds, his flesh has been burned from his skin, leaving his clothes miraculously um, unsinged. And then Masao Tabushi says, uh, you know, as Colonel Simon is gaping at this dead skeleton lying in front of them, uh, Masao points up to the sky and he says, um, look up there, Colonel. And, you know, the Colonel says, my God. 
and then you see old man Tabushi's face in the rising sun. So he actually became one with the rising sun and got revenge on his killer and by literally burning him to a crisp. So yeah, that's the story there. Now because of the, the weird events um, around the sort of turning of Sergeant Reynolds, I can only give this story, um, still it's my favorite of the bunch, but I'll give it a 3.5 Grinning Skulls rating. Yeah, so 3.5 Grinning Skulls out of 5. Because um, it's, it's a very nice story, very emotional. It shows the plight of the Japanese people as they were relocated in these camps and deals with it sensitively. And at the end of the day, the Japanese people, the and uh, with the help of Colonel Simon, who sort of reformed, who immediately turned around and became a good guy for some, you know, inexplicable reason, uh, probably because the tables turned against him immediately. You know, um, it, it happened so abruptly, you know, that I can't give the story more than 3.5 out of 5 stars. But the art is really, really great. No Lisa Mora. Yeah, he or she. It's probably a she. I, I'm not sure. It could be a he. Uh, I'll do some research on that. Um, the name is so fascinating. I just have to know more about this artist. He or she did an excellent job on the art. Great flowing lines. Very evocative of the time. Excellent facial expressions. Uh, there's also a great use of color, especially when the rising sun scene happens. And like I say, the the death of Sergeant Reynolds is so breathtaking, the way it's portrayed. First he starts sweating, then his hair becomes Einstein-like, and uh, he starts smoking, then he turns completely red, like a, you know, um, like, like some kind of a sausage on a skillet, and then immediately the, the smoke um, fades, and he's basically just this grinning skeletal figure dressed in his army uniform. Brilliant. Brilliant illustration. Well done, Noli Zamora. All right, then uh, let's get to the final story, which is called Life Hangs by a Thread. All right, now this is probably my least favorite story of the bunch. Uh, but before I get into the rating, uh, let's do the synopsis. All right, so Life Hangs by a Thread. Writer Carl Wessler, art by Vincenti Alcazar. Uh, here we go. Eddie Morton, a fighter pilot, has to carry his lucky teddy bear under the captain's orders, but he doesn't believe in lucky charms. His teddy is damaged and he is unable to take it on the next mission. A friend saves his life by putting a substitute charm in his cockpit, but of course this happens at a terrible price. Okay, so that's basically the story of life hangs by a thread. Now, um, the weird conceit of the story is that the captain of this fighter uh, pilot squad, he insists that every single, single fighter pilot under his command has to carry a lucky charm. Yeah, now some of them have lucky dice, they've got a rabbit's foot, some of them have these grinning death's head skulls. And uh, one guy who doesn't believe in lucky charms, Eddie Morton, he gets a teddy bear from his family back in the States. And this teddy bear apparently, you know, uh, works because every time he carries it with him in the cockpit on the captain's orders, <laughs> you know, um, he comes back alive and he manages to shoot down 
a couple of German um, fighter aces. So everybody believes in this luck except Eddie. And then um, during a you know, dog fight, the teddy's damaged and he has to take it to be repaired. And he takes it to a nurse who sort of flirts with him, even though he's this grown man carrying this teddy bear. And the nurse flirts with him and she says, yeah, no, I can fix it for you. No worries, soldier boy. Unfortunately, you'll have to go without your teddy for the next flight. But Eddie doesn't care. He doesn't believe in this luck BS but his friend, uh, a guy called Chuck Taylor, he unfortunately does. So he sees Eddie heading to his plane as they're called on the next mission without his lucky teddy bear. And then Chuck <laughs> knocks Eddie out cold <laughs> for some reason and then, you know, flies off with the rest of the squadron, leaving Eddie passed out on the runway. You know, this is now Chuck trying to save Eddie's life, thinking that, yeah, he's laying him out. This will stop him from going and he won't die without his lucky charm but Eddie wakes up he's not to be deterred he climbs in his fighter plane and heads off after his squad and then in fact it does seem that Eddie survives by the skin of his neck but but he shoots down a couple of uh, uh, German uh, planes and then uh, Chuck Taylor doesn't make it yeah he dies in a dogfight and as Eddie lands the plane he finds out that uh, he did have a lucky charm inside his plane after all and it turned out to be Chuck's death's head lucky charm hanging from uh, his uh, cockpit so what transpired is Chuck obviously put his death's head lucky charm in Eddie's uh, cockpit and then that saved Eddie's life so wow what a good friend Chuck turned out to be well way to go there Chuck you sacrificed yourself <laughs> but you know for a friend so yeah, I guess that makes it, well, okay, at least in this story. But what a weird story. This guy carrying this teddy bear and, and the rest of the guys, they don't mind. They just want him to carry the damn bear. They don't even make fun of him. They say, yeah, man, as long as you've got a, a good luck charm, that's that's fine. <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, listeners, I have to give the story two death's heads out of five. Grinning skulls, I should say. Now, the death's head is the dice. Two grinning skulls out of five, but very enjoyable. I laughed out loud when I read the story again, reread it. But probably the first time I read it, I thought, "Whoa, this is deathly serious." Well, he's so lucky. But now I look back upon it with, you know, fond memories, and you know, like I say, very humorous, very funny stories. So I can recommend this comic to any of you interested in some classic horror war comics. That's right. War comics with a twist, with a horror twist. Check out Weird War Tales. Well, that's it for our first segment. When we come back, we've got some listener feedback and some iTunes reviews. And Aaron will help us with that during our Aaron segment. So stay tuned. Well, listeners, we're back with our ever-popular Aaron segment. Aaron, the incredible in intern, the secretary of the macabre, the producer of the Long Box of Darkness. And she is here tonight with some feedback that uh, the podcast has received. We've got two emails from listeners, and then we've also got two iTunes reviews. 
So, um, but first, let's find out what Aaron's been up to. Aaron, how are you? Okay. You seem unusually energetic tonight. Are you sure? Oh, maybe it's my imagination, yeah. Uh, energetic is not a term that could be associated with you. I mean, you're a pretty busy lady. You don't have time for fun and games. Tuh. <laughs> All right, so Aaron, tell me, uh, could you please read the first email that we've received? Okay. Um, Chris Samuels writes, Hey man, I'm enjoying the show. Hope you look at more Baltimore stories down the line. It's my very horror title at the moment. Keep up the good work. And then Tyler Bennington says, the long box of darkness doesn't seem to actually be reviewing comics so much as just discussing the stories and gushing about them. Every title cover so far seems to be four or five star book in your opinion. Would it kill you to be more critical and do some subjective reviews? This podcast has the potential to be so much more. Also, get the co-host. Alright, um... But Tyler, don't you know I'm the host and Herman is the co-host the whole I, time? I thought you were more like the producer of the show or the intern. I'm joking. Yeah, you should get a co-host. Seriously. Oh, well, we'll, we'll work on that, Aaron. He's we'll work right. on that. <laughs> All right, guys. And we've got two iTunes reviews. Could you read them, please? The first one was by Clinton Robinson. It says, Creepy fun with comics! This show is the perfect companion piece for those who enjoy horror comics or horror in general. Don't have experience with com horror comics? No problem! This is a podcast for new fights and veterans alike. The host has a smooth and even delivery that welcomes listeners. He truly has a passion for the subject material. Good luck finding horror podcasts this much fun. All right, and then we've got a final review. Um, who's that from? It is from Zhang Zhang Johnny. He says, listen to it now. <laughs> I've only listened to the first two episodes, but I'm already loving it. Show Mr. Low. You mean Mrs. Lowe, some support for covering graphic terror from the past and present. It's one of those podcasts that has me wondering, why the hell hasn't anyone attempted to do this before? <laughs> okay, great. That's our feedback. Thank you, Erin. I appreciate you being here. So what are you going to do now? Go to sleep. Really? But it's like two in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's late at night over here. Okay, Aaron, take care. All right. Now, just to get some, give some feedback on the feedback <laughs> that I received from our uh, listeners. Uh, let's start with Chris first. Chris, thanks for praising the show. I'm glad you're enjoying it, Chris. And don't worry, we'll definitely be looking at Baltimore down the line again. It's also one of my favorites. And I think uh, up next would be the Chapel of Bones trade paperback that I'll probably discuss a couple of months down the line. So be patient, man. We'll get there. And then, um, Tyler, um, I'm sorry, man, that you think The Long Walks of Darkness has been too subjective. I'll try to be more objective. In fact, I've got an episode planned 
um, which is probably going to air in two weeks' time. It's called Dissecting the Corpse of 2017. And there I'll be looking at all the comic books that I've read and also the movies that I've seen in 2017 that I didn't enjoy. Um, and those would be books with uh, two and a half stars or lower um, out of my five-star rating. So um, basically, don't worry about it, Tyler. I'll try to be more critical. But, you know, normally I do pick the stuff I like, and that's what I talk about on this show. So I guess you can't blame me there, can you, man? Because I enjoy talking about it about what I like. I don't really like to focus on negative things all the, all the time. But if I do reviews, I will try to be critical, of course. I won't try to um, tout something that I think is less than stellar. But um, yeah, look forward to that show, Tyler. I hope you um, listen again when we do the Dissecting the Corpse of 2017 episode. And then thanks to Clinton Robinson uh, for the great review on iTunes. In fact, Clinton has his own podcast about comics. It's a great show called the Coffee and Comics Podcast. He also runs a blog under the same name, so be sure to check that out on iTunes and uh, check out his blog as well. And then thanks uh, to John John Johnny. <laughs> Appreciated man. Great name, by the way. Um, uh, thanks uh, for the positive feedback. Okay, that's it. Next up, we'll be doing our History of Horror segment. Stay tuned for that. Welcome to yet another installment of Herman's History of Horror Comics. Join your host Herman Lowe on a journey into the deepest, darkest recesses of the past to discover the root of sequential fear. <laughs> Alright, um, listeners, the last time we spoke about the history of horror in comic book form, we discussed Jim Warren and his Warren publication magazines, Creepy and Eerie. But as I mentioned the last time, it all started with a magazine that he distributed in 1957 called Famous Monsters of Filmland, geared towards garnering the attention of film and uh, movie buffs who were fans of the Universal Monsters and, uh, of course, the Hammer films who, that had become popular at the time. And this magazine was an unequivocal success. It um, truly became a phenomenon. And, of course, that spawned many imitators. You had um, other magazines trying to copy Warren's success, um, magazines like Weird Mysteries and Eerie Tales. Um, and, of course, not all of them were successful, but uh, Warren Publishing maintained their success at least until 1964 when they decided to capitalize on a relaxed uh, comics book code. But it didn't really matter at that time because they circumvented the comics code by uh, distributing their uh, material as magazines. Much like Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was sold on the magazine racks and not on the comic book racks, the magazines that Warren published in 1964, Creepy and then later Eerie, were sold on the magazine racks. And they were also in a larger format, printed on heavier paper, and their prices were higher, of course. So, but let's um, talk a little bit more about what preceded uh, Creepy in 1964. Because um, if you look at Creepy, 1964 kind of ushered in the era of black and white horror magazines 
which lasted for at least um, 10 to 15 years after it had been um, initiated by Jim Warren in 1964. So um, at first, in between 1957, um, which saw famous monsters of Filmland's Genesis, and then in 1964, there were some other publishers of note, and I should mention them quickly here. Um, 1962, Dell Comics, um, which had previously published titles such as Bugs Bunny and Donald Duck, um, they suddenly published two horror comics. Now, this was very strange for them at the time, especially since um, John Stanley, uh, the writer of Little Lulu, actually wrote one of the one-shot horror comic book stories called Tales from the Tomb. And they were genuinely scary, by all accounts. I've never read them, actually. I'm trying to get my hands on them, but it's very, very difficult. They're very, very rare. But they were truly um, scary. And Dell Comics didn't bother with the comic book code, even though they were uh, a comic book per se, because they were seen as wholesome. So they never subscribed to the code because nobody required that of them. And suddenly they came out with these two horror titles and it was successful for a time. And then, you know, after uh, Dell, there came, of course, uh, Gold Key, which is um, a part of Dell. And with the success of their previous two horror titles, they licensed the rights to The Twilight Zone, uh, Rod Serling's famous TV series which was enjoying um, its height of popularity at this time. And also, Boris Karloff's Thriller. And uh, that was, of course, the show featuring uh, the legendary Boris Karloff introducing tales of horror um, on TV. And what happened then was um, it spun off into um, an, a magazine called Boris Karloff's Tales of Mystery. It was actually still a comic book, but it was definitely a little bit larger than a normal comic book size of the time. So you had Dell, um, which also includes Gold Key Publishing, um, trying to push horror a little bit in this era. And this was the era of monster magazines, famous monsters of Filmland and so forth. But these magazines were not yet uh, focusing on stories. I mean, you had, of course, William Gaines trying to reinvigorate his horror, horror line uh, at EC with Picto Fiction, which I briefly mentioned um, in a previous episode. Um, he tried to obviously put all of his EC comic titles into magazine form uh, by calling it Picto Fiction, but it didn't work because it was neither here nor there. People didn't know quite what it was, so it didn't succeed. But um, at least Dell and Gold Key, they enjoyed a fair modicum of success in the early 60s. All right, but then we got to the era where Warren magazines became the undisputed king of black and white horror mags. In 1964, um, it sort of created a horror boom when Creepy was released then, um, at least for a decade. And... Um, it featured everything that the comics book uh, code hated at this time. Werewolves, vampires, a lot of blood, even though it was colorless. This was the black blood. Um, lots of uh, evil, darkness, demons, satanic rituals, witches, curses. So readers had been clamoring for this ever since the demise of EC, and they got exactly what they wanted with Warren's 
um, new magazine creepy. And to make things, um, to add a uh, cherry to the cake, um, famous easy artists were employed by Jim Warren because they weren't enjoying a lot of work at the time. Well, some of them had gone into advertising, but of course comics was their first love, so he lured them back. And you had guys like uh, Reed Crandall and Joe Orlando and Frank Frazetta and Jack Davis, all those easy guys. They came back, and this was what they loved to do, full-on, no-holds-barred horror. And um, then, as of issue three, uh, Warren also managed to call Archie Goodwin as the editor and sometimes writer on some of the stories in Creepy. Now, Archie Goodwin was an amazing editor, probably one of the best ever. I'm talking about the best ever in the comic book industry of all time. He's definitely a goat uh, when it comes to the editing and also a great horror writer. He uh, wrote amazing horror stories. And um, that sort of made creepy into the fad that it uh, eventually became because under Goodwin's d uh, direction the magazine enjoyed unprecedented success and then um, Erie followed the next year in 1965 and then um, things really started going well for Warren because they were raking in the cash and the profits were high and their magazines were literally flying off the, off the racks so, um, although EC did feature sometimes a few science fiction stories, it wasn't always focused on horror. Creepy sort of um, maintained the horror flow uh, that was um, so enrapturing readers at this time. And, uh, you know, um, uh, this is basically the beginning of the era of Jim Warren and uh, the Black and White Monster magazines. Um, in the next show... We'll talk more about the brief lull in Warren's sales and how that led into the formation of one of the most famous horror magazines and horror characters ever. And of course, we're talking here about a female horror character called Vampirella. We'll talk more about her in the next episode, though. I hope you enjoyed this segment of The History of Horror. Tune in again next time for more unbridled edification. Easy, you know, yeah. thing, Tales of the Crypt kind of thing. And now there's a lot more just storytelling going on. Right, I think character is back in horror. I think for a long time, gore was kind of like the thing in horror. But now I think, like, largely because of these guys, the character and actual story rather than just shock is back. And I think that's really important. And I think that's part of, I don't know that there's a resurgence, like, yeah. overall. But I think it's it's more at the forefront. There's always been this following for horror, but I, I think now it's a little maybe more in the, the mainstream and more acceptable because of the storytelling that's going on. Well, before I wrap up the show, I would like to leave you with some recommendations, constant listeners. Stuff that I've been reading lately that I think is worthy of your attention. Um, first off, I want to recommend a series that would probably not be classified as horror, but it's pretty great. Um, it does have some horror elements to it, most notably a demon. So I would classify this as um, definitely a book that any fan of horror would enjoy. And it is by Image Comics, a title called Kill or Be Killed by Ed Brubaker, the writer, Sean Phillips, the artist, 
and Elizabeth Breitweiser, the colorist. And it's a great tale. It's a story about a young man in his early 20s called Dylan, who is approached by a demon who threatens him with um, his life. And he says, Dylan, in order to live, you have to kill. You have to kill one person a month at least. If you don't, I will destroy you and I will take away your life. So uh, Dylan at first cannot uh, even conceive of killing another person, but then the demon says, you've been looking at this the wrong way. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to get rid of the scum in the world, the bad guys, the pedophiles, the criminals, the rapists. Um, those kind of people deserve death, so why don't you just take them out? Make the world a better place. If you don't, you'll face my wrath. So because of this demon's ultimatum, Dylan sets out to become this vigilante. And it's, other than the, you know, the fact that there's a demon in it, it's actually a very realistic tale of this person who tries uh, in a real-world setting to actually do these horrible deeds and kill these terrible people that he goes after. And don't expect something like The Punisher. I know this isn't a climate where everybody wants to talk about guns and whatnot. There's not a lot of gunplay in this comic, but a lot of great character development. You really get into the characters of Dylan and um, a couple of uh, characters that you know hang around him. Some are his friends, some are his enemies, but you know, Brubaker really fleshes them out. So I would recommend this series. It's a must read, definitely. And then a series I've recently picked up. I actually started reading it um, last year, December, but um, I picked up the recent issue number four, and that is Sherlock Frankenstein and the Legion of Evil, published by Dark Horse. And this is, of course, written by the incomparable Jeff Lemire, uh, with art by a uh, Spanish legend, in my mind, David Rubin. Great series focusing on one of the characters from their Black Hammer comic, the bad guy, the titular uh, Lord of Evil, Sherlock Frankenstein. It's a great comic, lots of humor, amazing art, really fleshes out the story of the Black Hammer universe. I would recommend that you pick that up from Dark Horse. All right, so those are my recommendations for this week. If you would like to leave any feedback and uh, get in touch with the Long Box of Darkness, please send an email to darklongbox at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at darklongbox. That's my handle. Or you can just check out the blog, which is at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Okay, listeners, I'm signing off. It's late, but never too late to read some horror comics. So as I sign off, go grab a good comic that scares the heck out of you. Peruse it and fall asleep, and I'm sure your nightmares will see you through the night. Well, that's it for me. I'm signing off. Take care of yourselves. Until you hear from me again, this is Herman Lowe saying goodbye and good night. <laughs>